Thomas. Good morning, everyone. As James said, the, <clears throat> the first service was a little bit tricky when the power went out uh, halfway through worship. And it's just, you know, I, I, don't, I don't preach a, a huge amount, but you know, when I do, you really don't want it to be that day when the power goes out and there's panic. And I'd already been in this morning and a few of my slides hadn't transferred over onto the USB disk. And now I'm thinking, I'm not going to have any slides for my sermon. And I'm going, oh, why today? But it all, it all worked out okay in the end. And uh, you know, when, when I prepare for, for a sermon, what I often do is I will, I'll, I'll find a place at home, <clears throat> I'll set up and I have my phone on video and I record myself because I want to you know, understand what I look like and what I hear. And I was, I was listening to it afterwards. And I, if you don't know me, I grew up in Durban, so I have a bit of a Durban accent. And then I have a bit of a nasal block at the moment as well. So those two factors together uh, make some of my pronunciation not great. And so I, I, listened to my, I listened to myself and I was like, wow, there are a few words in there that I didn't quite get myself. <clears throat> so I'm trying to be articulate this morning and pronounce all my words correctly and so that you may hear me well. But today we are talking about stories and I just want to frame it. And like, you know, everyone is, everyone's looking for a story worth living, Right. We all, we all want to matter. We all want our lives to be worth remembering. We all want to live in a story worth telling. As humans, we, we love stories, right? As a young Christian in the 90s, uh, I was strongly influenced by writers like John Eldridge, Don Miller, um, Max Lucado, Louis Giglio. And this idea of stories was something that they were, that they were fascinated by and really informed that the way um, that they wrote. It was really formational for me and many of the concepts I'm going to speak about today were, were first thought about and written by them. I'll just warn you from the outset, this is not a, a typical expository sermon where there's a, there's a verse and, and five points to go with it. And it's more of a narrative sermon. First of its kind for me, and I hope you, hope you don't mind coming on a little journey with me today as we do that. In my family, we kind of roll from one story to another. Books are probably one of the biggest influences um, in our lives. You know, the stones were rolling away early in the worship and there was things running all over the roof. I wasn't sure if there were stones rolling on the roof, but I don't know if it was monkeys or something. But books are one of the biggest influences in our home. And so this is a, this is a picture a few, a few months ago. Meg took this. Um, this is a typical Saturday morning um, in, our, in, our, in our home. Um, you know, everyone are reading or something. And here are a few more. Uh, I love the one <laughs> with Ella with a box on her head. Um, but yeah, that's, that's, how we, that's how we roll. So each, for each of our girls, three daughters, learning to read has been this watershed moment for them. Maylee's six years old. She's on the cusp of that right now. She's in grade R. And she's, she's kind of pulling at the reins. She's, she's really feeling like the education system is taking her too long to get there. She's trying to teach herself letters and how they go together. And so copying anything that she can find. Now, now, labels are one of the things that she likes to copy, and it's pretty weird to see uh, Castle Light uh, <laughs> in a six-year-old handwriting. <clears throat> but, it's, but it's all in an effort for her to, to crack open this world of reading because she can see the enjoyment and fulfillment that we get out of it. Not only do we love books, but we love listening to stories as well. When I'm, when I'm training, when I'm driving, I always, I always have a story going. You, you may not read or you may not enjoy audiobooks, but what about movies? Hey, we all love to get sucked into a good rom-com every now and then, right? Hey? We long for just another classic. What is it about stories? Why, why are we so drawn to them? 
There's an escapism element, of course, to it. But more than story, it's, it's stories are, are how, we, how we figure things out. Humans have this, this deep craving for meaning and purpose in their life. A deep-seated need to know the rest of the story, to hopefully identify ourselves in that story. We all have felt the power of story, the universal longing for a plot that just makes deep sense inside us. If I could share a personal story, and I warn you, it might make you see me in a different light. Uh, as a family, we love shows like America's Got Talent, right? Um, I'm not sure if many of you are familiar with the concept of this show, but people perform in front of um, pretty big audiences and some pretty tough judges, round after round, eliminating the poor performances um, until there is a, a, a winner of all of these. Um, if you're really impressive during the audition phase of this, um, there's, a, there's this thing called a golden buzzer. It's a literal golden buzzer that's on the judge's table. And if pressed, it sends the performer straight to the live finals. It's, pretty, it's a pretty big thing. Tens of thousands of people audition for this uh, show uh, from all over the world every year. And some, some, are, some are terrible, to be honest. <laughs> but every now and then, there's someone who is, who's, who's had to overcome hardship, who's had to face a lot of challenges uh, who's dared to have a dream, they've traveled far, they've taken this great risk to stand on the stage in front of these crowds, in front of the judges. Some of them just start off so nervously and it doesn't look good, but then they deliver this standing, ovation, amazing performance. They nail it. Everyone in the room is on their feet and elated and so excited for them. And then things settle down and each judge has to vote and speaks and yes, yes. But then there's that moment where that one judge stands up and he smashes that golden buzzer and golden confetti literally rains down from the ceiling. The contestants fall to their knees. Their career is made. Like the hard work is paid off. Like their, their trial is over. This incredible story is complete. And it turns out I'm quite an emotional invested viewer in this. And it's a recipe to push me over the edge and I cry every single time. I sit there with my four dry-eyed girls in our house, tears strumming to my face, and they can't help but just giggle at me. It's now become a bit of a hobby in our house when we want something to watch and they want to make Dad cry. They choose shows like Top Ten Golden Buzzer Moments. <laughs> and I'm a mess. But I can't help it because my heart just connects with these stories. So today I have one simple question for you and one story to tell you. My question is this, have you written a place for God in your story? Have you written a place for God in your story? For many of us, actually, life feels like we've arrived at a movie 45 minutes late, right? You, you can see stuff happening. You can see there's some good guys. You can see there's some bad guys. And we aren't quite 100% sure what, what our role is. It's like we're holding in our hands some torn out pages of a book. In the Lord of the Rings, there's this poignant moment where Gandalf and Frodo are sitting around the fire, and, and Frodo starts questioning Gandalf about this journey that they're on. He doesn't understand the full picture. He, he's trying to get his bearings. He, he has only seen the Shire with its round doors and its dinner parties and its safety. He doesn't understand the tale that he has actually stepped into, and Gandalf begins to explain to him. He says, Frodo, dude, these things happened before you joined us. This is, this is not Act One. Things will continue to happen after you leave the story. And there's, there's more at play here than just, just a little shire. 
And he tells them about the dark Lord Sauron and the orcs and this and ancient riders and this battle that's been raging on for decades. You see, Frodo could not be a hero unless he was born into a story with many chapters already played out before that. His moment derives this weight and its urgency from the moments that came before that. What if that's true of us today? What if our moment on this planet is, much, is part of a much larger story? What if the story we find ourselves in now is actually the story? Would it be wrong to have this talk about story and actually not tell you on this morning? So I'm going to tell you about this ultimate story, the one that's written on the human heart, the story unlocks the meaning of our lives, the story that pulls all others into perspective and brings purpose to our own story. It's a story that resonates in the deep places of our hearts because it's his story. Let's begin. We're so familiar with Genesis 1 that you may think the story starts there. But actually it starts many lifetimes before that with a relational trio. Let's read from John 1, 1 to 3. In the beginning, once upon a time, was the Word. And the Word was with God. He was with God in the beginning, through whom all things were made. Without him, nothing was made that had been made. Before there was time, before there was space, before there were planets and the stars and the universe, there was God, and he was not alone. He lived in divine and perfect fellowship with Jesus and the Holy Spirit. Their very existence, one of love and of the deepest kind of intimacy and connection. This is the very core of who God is. He has always been Trinity. He has always been relational. He has always been love. It wasn't a lonely existence, but he was, it was complete in every way. The story begins with a love so perfect that we probably really only get to understand that one day in heaven. What a brilliant beginning to the story, hey? And then came, not humans, not earth, angels. God created the angels, powerful, beautiful, valiant, valiant. I keep saying valiant in my prep. Valiant, powerful, valiant angels. We are comforted by this idea as humans, aren't we? To have, human, to have angels around us, hey? When we escape some mishap, or something, a close call, we kind of say, hey, my guardian angel, help me out there. Been watching over me. And they're even becoming quite popular in the secular world these days. You, you, you see some insanely hot guy wearing some ripped jeans and showing a six-pack off and a war face on and huge big, big wings behind him. But the truth is angels are far more terrifying. Let's read what Daniel's description in Daniel 10, verse 5 to 9. As I was standing on the bank of the great Tigris River, I looked up and saw a man dressed in linen clothing with a belt of pure gold around his waist. His body looked like a precious gem. His face flashed like lightning and his eyes flamed like torches. His arms and feet shone like polished bronze and his voice roared like a vast multitude of people. Only I, Daniel, saw this vision. The men with me saw nothing, but they were suddenly terrified and ran away to hide. So I was left there all alone to see this amazing vision. My strength left me, my face grew deathly pale, and I felt very weak. Then I heard the man speak, and when I heard the sound of his voice, I fainted and lay there with my face to the ground. There's a reason that in nearly every record of angelic visitation, the first words to us mortals are, do not be afraid, right? They're not cherubs or men with, with golden wings. These are, the real angels are mighty, glorious, dreadful beings, more powerful than you can imagine. And we see in two chronicles, we see that one angel annihilated the entire Syrian army. Just one angel. 
The Bible tells us in Daniel 7 that there are 10,000 times 10,000 angels. That's 100 million angels, by the way. We fall on our faces in, in, in the fear at the sight of angels, yet they're only beings created by God. And So what clue does this give us about God? We live in a world of two parts, friends. One seen and one unseen. So let's carry on with this story, with this narrative. We've seen the, the Trinity and its perfect union. We have this majestic and probably slightly terrifying angels. So what now? Now we meet the most beautiful and powerful of all angels. Standing at the head of these vast legions of angelic hosts was a captain. The most beautiful and powerful of them all. The commander of the armies of God. The guardian of the glory of the Lord. His name was Lucifer which means glorious as the sun, unequaled among his noble peers. Let's read the account in Ezekiel 28, verse 13 to 19. You were the model of perfection, full of wisdom and exquisite in beauty. Your clothing was adorned with every precious stone, all beautifully crafted for you and set in the finest gold. They were given to you on the day you were created. I ordained and anointed you as the mighty angelic guardian. You had access to the holy mountain of God and walked among the stones of fire. You were blameless in all you did from the day you were created until the day evil was found in you. Your rich commerce led you to violence and you sinned. So I banished you in disgrace from the mountain of God. I expelled you, O mighty guardian, from your place among the stones of fire. Your heart was filled with pride because of all your beauty. Your wisdom was corrupted by your love of splendor. So I threw you to the ground and exposed you to the curious gaze of kings. You defiled your sanctuaries with your many sins and your dishonest trade. So I brought fire out from within you and it consumed you. I reduced you to ashes on the ground in the sight of all who were watching. All who knew you are appalled at your fate. So you see, our story takes this deathly and dramatic turn. Pride entered Lucifer's heart. He wanted more than power. He wanted to be worshipped. This excellent captain came to believe that he was, he was being cheated somehow. He, he merely didn't want to play a noble role in the story. He wanted the story to be about him. He coveted the throne. He wanted the beauty and the adoration for himself. And so he drew a third of the angels to himself, and this vicious war began. It wasn't like wars as we know it. It wasn't like the great Avenger movies battle where whole cities are destroyed in this. No, it was a thousand times more vicious and violent, and the force of the power of it is probably something our human minds actually can't comprehend. Aside from the physical violence, it was the violence of betrayal. God, deep and heartbreaking and visceral, it reverberated through God's heart and the army angels. Lucifer, the favorite among them, oh, come on. We don't know how long this battle waged, but the Trinity emerged victorious. Lucifer was defeated. He was thrown out of heaven. He and his demons limped away with nothing but hate and revenge in their hearts. And so we see evil enters the story in this dreadful and vile form. Friends, let's never get complacent about the villain in this story. He's not a cheeky little guy in red tights with a little pitchfork. He's worse than all the villains and all the stories put together. He's Hitler, the Stalin, the Mugabe, the child traffickers, the genocidal governments, times hundreds of thousands. Life is confusing if you don't take into account that there is evil in our story. That you have a mighty evil villain in your story. 
We live in a world of two parts, one seen and one unseen. In Mere Christianity, C.S. Lewis writes, one of the things that surprised me when I first read the New Testament seriously was that it talked so much about a dark power in the universe, a mighty evil spirit who was held to be the power behind death, disease, and sin. Christianity believes that this dark power was created by God and was good when he was created and went wrong. Christianity agrees this is a universe at war. Now, and that story carries on. We don't know how much time passes or if time was actually even a thing, but our relational God decides to create a place and a people that he can love. So just picture with me now as we build this up, pure silence, pure darkness, space stretching out into infinity. The concept of place doesn't exist. Nothing we now know actually exists in the beginning. No solid form has been created. Darkness over the deep and God's breath hovering. He is ready. Anticipation charges the atmosphere. It must be like that moment on a cold morning, like this morning, uh, when you know your breath will be like vapor. And we see God, almost imagine God flexing his hands in preparation, taking a deep breath, saying, right, let's create some stuff. Imagine, now we go, Genesis 1. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. The earth was formless and empty and darkness covered the deep waters. And the Spirit of God was hovering over the surface of the waters. Then God said, let there be light. And there was light. And God saw the light was good. Then he separated the light from the darkness. God called the light day and the darkness night. We've heard this thousands of times before, but we forget God was actually creating light. You know, the stuff that we actually had to invent a new ruler for this. Our normal way of measuring things were too small, so we invented the light year. Here's a quick science lesson on a light year. Defined as the distance that light travels in one year in a vacuum, light travels approximately 9.46 trillion kilometers. That's a big number. Light travels at the speed of about just short of 300,000 kilometers per second. And God used four words to create that light. Let there be light. And he spoke it and it flew out his mouth. It's one something billion kilometers an hour. Guys, the fastest current car on our planet right now is the McMurtry Spirling. I'm not even sure if I'm saying that right. It reaches 400, that's it, 498.8 kilometers per hour. It has this fan underneath it that blows directly onto the surface below to give it some buoyancy and make it light, Right? And this fan can only be turned on on real tar because if it was to go over something like bricks, the force of it is so strong, it will just rip those bricks up. Now, Max Chilton, he was the guy who was tasked with test driving this car, he said he had to learn to breathe in a new way when driving it because the force of the acceleration on his chest meant that he couldn't actually breathe normally. That's a fast car. Light is 2.1 million times faster than that, and he created it in four words. That is our God. Then he created the land and the sea, 9,000 meters heights of Everest, 11,000 meters down into the Marianas Trench. He created rainforests and fields of wild flowers, Serengeti, the Alps, Hawaii, the Grand Canyon, Chapman's Peak, the Northern Lights. Imagine this all on the day that it was born. And it doesn't stop there. Into the world, God opens his hand, and these animals spring forth. 
all nine million species of them, hawks, herons, hyenas, all the creatures of the sea leap into it. Whales, stingrays, fish in a thousand different colors and designs. Thundering across the plains, immense herds of horses, impalas, and buffaloes. I mean, elephants and rainbows and snow, for goodness sake. No wonder the morning stars sang together and the angels shout for joy. Speaking of stars, think of our vast universe. Think of our little solar system, the Milky Way, which is just one of many, you know. It's just 53,000 light years in length. That's that number in kilometers. It's 14 with 18 numbers after that kilometers wide. That's our Milky Way. And the Bible says that God holds the stars in his right hand. And in Psalm 33, we see he breathed the word and all the stars were born. The Lord merely spoke and the heavens were created. He breathed the word and all the stars were born. That's our God, an utterly big, astonishing, magnificent God. And just in case you're wondering, he has a picture of how we fit into the Milky Way. You might think that the big bright bit in the middle is the sun, but no, no, no. That tiny speck at the end of the arrow is the sun. The earth doesn't even feature in this image because, relatively speaking, it's too small to be seen by the human eye. And in, so the speck is the sun, and the earth fits into that speck 1.3 million times. And he holds the galaxies in his hands, friends. That is our God. And so now we see this creation building, building, and swells to this climax from one astonishing act to another. As an onlooker, you'd be wondering, what on earth is he going to do next? We get the sense something truly astonishing was about to take place, some, some mega masterpiece. Let's read on Genesis 1, 26. Then God said, let us make human beings in our image to be like us. They will reign over the fish in the sea, the birds in the sky, the livestock, all the wild animals on the earth, and the small animals that scurry along the ground. So God created human beings in his own image. In the image of God, he created them, male and female, he created them. Do you understand how momentous this is? I confess I don't always, but of all the wonders he has made so far, nothing else was made in his image until us. We are his masterpiece because we are made in his glorious image. More beautiful to him than the breathtaking creation we adore and the angels we fear, we are his masterpiece created by him, created like him, able to reason, to create, to share intimacy, to know joy, to know laughter and wonder and imagination. Above all else, he gives us the quality for which he is most known. He enables us to love. Made for him by, for eternal connection with him. At the core, he is relational. And on the other side of that is where he made us. To be part of that relationship. It's a truly astonishing act. The, the rest of it is, is jewelry. On top of it all, he actually gives us complete autonomy and choice about the way we live. And whether to choose to love him back or not. When I look at the night sky and see the work of your fingers, the moon and stars you set in place. What are mere mortals that you should think about them, human beings that you should care for them? Yet you made them only a little lower than God and crowned them with glory and honor, Psalm 8. 
you know, we talk a lot about original sin, but we mustn't forget the wonder of original glory. Friends, this is important. Our story does not begin in Genesis 3 with sin. Too often we hear this narrative, it starts with, you're a sinner, and Jesus died for you on the cross, and he rose again, and you can go to heaven. That's not how the story begins. We've just seen how God created us out of his love, in his image, to be intimate allies with him, to live with him in his creation, in union with him, with joy, with a heart like his. This is the first point of reference for us. The first description of us in the story is made in his image. Sadly, we don't have time to dwell here, as amazing as that thought is. The story goes on, but tuck it away in your heart. Come back to it, because it's worth revisiting. And so as the story continues, as the narrative goes on, there's another tragic twist. In the Garden of Eden, evil lurked. It was already there. The great malevolent beast was at work. Satan hates God. He hates anything that reminds him of the glory of God wherever it exists. Even as a reflection of him, unable to overthrow the mighty one, he turns his sights onto those who bore his image and to those he loves. So you see, evil distorts Adam and Eve's understanding of what is right and what is true and what is noble. He distorts their understanding of God. He, 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 says, God's, he says, hey, God's holding out on you. You need to take control. You need to be your own God. You need to do what you need to do. You see how this sows deception, and they believe this lie, and this is where sin enters the human race, and the human race spirals from there. Something had broken, and we even feel the effect of that all around us today. We are created in his image for eternal connection with him, but because of the presence of evil in this world, it feels like the windscreen's a little bit murky and blurry. We have this desire to live in connection with him, deeply echoing in our hearts, but we have the lies of the enemy in our ears. That's why our day-to-day reality doesn't match up with the desires of our hearts. So in our story, we have the beloved, us. We have betrayed the hero. We've fallen into the grip of this great villain. Ha-ha, he thinks, I have won. But the hero of the story has already made a great and daring rescue plan. You'll never abandon his beloved. He will always be in pursuit of the hearts of mankind. He will always come for us. This is, after all, a love story, probably one of the greatest love stories ever told. And we know in this story, the hero completely flummoxes the enemy and does the most unexpected thing. The mighty creator, God of heaven, constrained himself to the body of a human baby. And the word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we beheld his glory the glory as of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. Lucifer knew the size and the strength of the Lord, and he knows that he has many legions of angels who will fight to the death. And he must have been expecting God to fight back in this loud show of strength, but he doesn't. He slips quietly behind enemy lines into a manger. The enemy freaks out and through Herod orders all the baby boys at that time to be killed. You can imagine searching, panicking. We know the story well. It's an extraordinary mission. This baby grows under the care of his teenage parents, living in an ordinary life, fully God and fully man, waiting and preparing. 
And in just three years of ministry, he changed the spiritual climate of the world forever. Three years, and then the fulfillment of the rescue mission, the cross. For even the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve others and to give his life as a ransom for many. Remember that God warned us in the garden that the price of our mistrust and disobedience would be death. It wasn't just physical death, not just physical death, but spiritual death to be separated from God. It wasn't his physical death that caused the most pain. It was for the first time in history, the Trinity was separated. God could not look at the sin that Jesus was carrying and he turned his face away. We sang about that this morning. Jesus was paid as the ransom to rescue us from the clutches of the evil one. Because Jesus defeated death, death cannot defeat us. Guys, this is the moment that all creation applauds. The angelic hosts sing on adoration of wonder and the stars shout out his name. He has won. Death is defeated. The grip of the dark forces have lost their power. A great victory. Of course, this is not the end of the story, right? The story is still underway, it's still unfolding, and we're caught up in that story. We have the great privilege of living in the most significant tale ever told, but we already know how it will end. The Bible is very clear on that. We will see the one true king return for the final scene. Whether we're still living or watching from heaven, we will see it happen. He will destroy the evil one once and for all. This is where my slides disappear, by the way, so we'll skip a few. <clears throat> and all creation, this is Romans 8, 28, verse 21, all creation anticipates the day when it will join God's, God's children in glorious freedom from death and decay. A glorious freedom for all eternity. Matthew 25, verse 38, come, you who are blessed by my Father, take your inheritance, the kingdom prepared for you since the creation of the world. And we know from, what, from who we know of God and his creation, eternity is going to be pretty ridiculously awesome. I don't believe there'll be a harp or a chubby cherub in sight, but rather be a place where our deep desires and his deep desires collide, where we will live out all that is good and all that is joyful. I think it'll be full of adventure and beauty and fun and fulfilling purpose. All things restored, all things new. A place that is utterly free of evil. We don't know what it's like yet, living without evil lurking around us. But most of all, it will be a place where we will be as we were meant to be, completely whole and completely connected with the one true king. John Aldred says, from the laughter of the Trinity we came, and from the laughter of the Trinity we will return. That's his story. That's pretty freaking awesome. I asked the question at the beginning, and I'd like to ask it again. Have you written a place for God in your story? But I hope now after hearing his story that the question sounds ludicrous. A place for God in my story? Whose story could contain him? But we live like that, don't we? He gets a little box on the shelf next to the parenting box, next to the career box, all in a nice little Instagram neat line. The better question to ask us, then we have to flip the narrative here and say, have you taken your place in his story? Have you taken your place in his story? Like, yeah, you're saying, hey, Mark, what does that even mean? What is my part? What is my role? 
I'm going to break a big preaching rule here. I'm not going to tell you the answer to that question. <laughs> I'm not going to give you five ways to apply what we've heard today to your life because in truth, the only one that can do that is God himself, the author. I will say this. We're not made to be a moralistic bunch of do-gooders living a tame and predictable life. Nor are we meant to be an army of identical robots all ticking the same boxes and, and becoming a pasty version of who we think we should be. The God who created nine million species of animals has more imagination than that. His purpose for you is way more fulfilling and adventurous than that. You were made in a way that makes you the only one that can live out your story. The things that make you you also make you irreplaceable in that story. In that larger story, you bear his image, you are all in all his glorious goodness in a truly unique way. So there's a, there's a vital chapter in this magnificent tale of truth, in this grand story, and it's got your name on it. Only he can show you, not me, not anyone else. And I wager it's a pretty good read and an even better one to live out. You are made with a purpose and you are made to live in relationship with God. And when you have the relationship, you will know the purpose. When you have the relationship, you'll have the purpose. Can I pray for us today? God, this morning, we have heard from you speaking. We have sung these incredible songs. We have heard from your word. And just, God, grateful and thankful for your story, and that you invite us into that story. And I know for many this morning that life feels overwhelming, feels that there's too many things in, in the way, too many blockages, too many unknowns about what is my part in the story. But God, thank you that you broke in, and through the cross, you brought us into in this relationship with you. God, I pray this morning that, we, that anyone who's struggling with, with these things would just get released from it. Jesus, that you would, you would come into those lives. Thank you that you are with us. Thank you for this grand story. Thank you for the beautiful part that we get to play. And God, I pray that you would speak to individual hearts this morning. Would you take a moment just to locate yourself with God? I know for me, I often find God in, in nature in a beautiful place. So wherever you feel closest to God, imagine that place, go there. Whether it's on a beach, whether it's looking at the stars. God, you created all of that. You breathed life into all of that and you breathed life into us. And you poured out your love into our hearts through the Holy Spirit. God continues to do that this morning. Pour your love into our hearts. Thank you for your Holy Spirit that lives within us. God, you are a God of restoration. You are always moving. And I just pray for restoration this morning. I pray against those barriers that are being held down. In Jesus' name, we, just, we, just, we break those down. We know that there is evil in this world and that there are challenges, but you have overcome them. God, keep our eyes focused on you.